our guest facilitators of knowledge are Jim Loud and Phil Harris. And Jim, why don't you um, go first and then a brief introduction and then um, let us see your view, whichever order you wanna do it in. Uh, well, let's start with the view. Uh, I live at 9,000 feet in Colorado on the Rio Grande River and we got about seven inches of snow last night and I'm listening to my wife running the snowblower uh, as we talk. Uh, I got a new hip two weeks ago, so, you know, she's had to kind of pick up the slack, but it is just gorgeous here. So let me share that with everyone. This is my front yard after oh the my. snow. Oh my. The line of trees <laughs> there is the Rio Grande River, which is pretty frozen now. In fact, we cross-country ski uh, on top of that uh, this time of year uh, when we have a hip that we <laughs> that will support. We have a hip. <laughs> but anyway, I, I've been uh, in safety for over 40 years. About 30 years of that was spent in the commercial nuclear uh, area, mostly with the Tennessee Valley Authority. And then I moved on to nuclear defense facilities at Los Alamos uh, for 12 years. And I retired from that back in 2004. Mm -hmm. And so here I am. Thank you, Jim. Phil? So me, um, I'm, my location is almost the exact opposite to Jim's. So I live in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, the temperature today was 37 degrees and today like every other day I get up and I don't question what the weather's going to be like because <laughs> I think it's it's almost a year since we've had rain that actually made the ground really wet you know so um, from that perspective yeah the exact opposite now I've, I've been in the nuclear industry for for 40 odd years um, prior to that I was I worked in Germany as a welding inspector for a while, uh, primarily in the UK. Um, I was a, a craftsman, an operator, a line manager, team leader, um, a, a lower middle middle level manager. And I've worked for in safety probably for the last 20 years. Um, human performance, nuclear safety culture, and, and I've I've become a, a, a safety geek, I think, like, like some others I recognize on, on here. Um, so I listen to everything, but my knowledge has, has grown immensely. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough world though. It's a tough world. I can imagine, hasn't rained in a year, but at least you have some certainty in your life, Phil. Absolutely. Absolutely. You never wonder what the weather's going to be. In the UK, that was always the first thing, look out the weather, out the window to see what the weather was like. It took me about six months to get over that. <laughs> that is funny. Um, Greg shared a file in the meeting. What was that about, Greg? Just showing that we do occasionally get a tiny little bit of good snow now and again here. But um, one of the joys of Britain is that we spend more time probably talking about the weather than anywhere else in the world. And yet the two extremes that have been described so far are um, never, never reached. Uh, it's very rare for us to get a decent snowfall or some uh, decent hot weather. Interesting, huh? Hmm. So you're kind of in the middle and you're the resolution of the paradox. <laughs> uh, well, it's an interesting one in terms of looking at complex systems, of course, because you have an entire culture which is founded in the uh, in the middle of uh, everything that get, washes across the Atlantic in the Gulf Stream. So uh, frontal systems and uh, very complex weather patterns um, are the norm and blocking highs are very rare. So as youngster, I grew up like most did with a map of a complex system on the back of every newspaper because synoptic charts showing weather fronts and such like were everywhere and every young person understood them. And I suppose now our 
more nautical people are still switched on to it and people who live and work in the outdoors. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a teenager, uh, I would look at a, a mapping system of one of the most famous complex systems in the world. And then when they start talking about the butterfly effect and all the rest of it, you know exactly what they're talking about because it doesn't take much to knock the path of the storms off the norm. And if the low pressure systems are tracking slightly further north than normal, then the implications are radically different depending on where you're living in Britain. And you know, the exact track has huge consequences and the predictability aspect is huge. And then in terms of risk management, um, you know, if, if you completely go to the extreme every time a storm's forecast, then uh, you would be overreacting massively. And yet when they do hit um, in the right place, then you need to be ready for them. And certainly if we get big, strong winds down south or heavy rainfall down south, uh, that's going to, or certainly snow, even a tiny bit of snow down there, uh, have a far, far uh, greater impact than uh, where the where the storms more typically hit slightly further north. But we're only talking in a small country and it isn't very far from um london to edinburgh um most of the most of the populations between those two extremes so greg i see it's not going to take much to get you to participate in this <laughs> i love how you extrapolate um so before we begin and get into it um i want to remind everyone that um uh, to please turn on uh your camera and uh you can be on mute uh, in case there's background noise, uh, but as soon as you unmute, that will be a signal that you want to participate because we do encourage people to uh, some spontaneity here in terms of participation. So um, this is a dialogue and Jim and Phil are our lead facilitators here. They also um, are you know, have knowledge. So they're knowledgeable facilitators. Uh, and uh, we have a very, very important topic today, one that has certainly um, been with me all of my career, which is about 30 years in trying to help organizations improve their safety performance, getting the managers involved and understanding what their role is in the ultimate outcome. Okay, so before we begin, uh, Tamara, are you with us to do the poll? She's saying yes. Thank you, Tamara. Okay, how active is your management? Okay, now this is interesting because a lot of you don't have uh, a, a facility where you're working. So you'll have to answer it from your experience as, um, as a consultant. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for making it. <laughs> Can I see Jim, Jim Marinas? Hi. Okay, so uh, it's people are voting. There's 15 people here and 13 have voted. Okay. Probably as many people as want to have voted. So why don't we um, in the poll and oh, there's enough. Good thing we waited for number 14. Number 15, going once, going twice. Share results. Okay. There we go. Um, uh, I think uh, white means was a typo. That was supposed to be quite a bit or a lot there. So, um, None, one person, or one person, some would be eight and uh, quite a bit, uh, I'm not sure you understood it that way, was, was five. So actually this uh, participation is a little higher than, than I expected. I don't know about you, we'll stop sharing here. All right, so um, I'm going to uh, hand it over to, um, starting with you, Jim, because you have uh, been very, very active, not only on, on LinkedIn, but also in your publications about the importance of 
the uh, involvement, getting, uh, you know, how, how to get management involved, why it's important. So um, if we start with you, and maybe that'll spark some questions in the audience or, um, or comments, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I think first of all, and most of us I'm sure would agree with this, I mean, management's responsible for safety, just like they are for quality and cost control and sales and uh, customer relations, quality, uh, they're responsible, it's a lot of responsibility and safety is just part of that. Uh, it's not the safety staff's responsibility, it's line management's responsibility and we're there to help them or at least that's the way I, I view it. And, and you really can't expect your workforce to act more safely, be more safety conscious than you demonstrate that you are. Uh, what I found is most managers do take safety seriously, especially in the nuclear world, but often they don't know what to do. And I think that's our fault, uh, the safety profession's fault. I don't think we've given them very good uh, guidance on that, how to be effective in what they do uh, in safety. Uh, and it's hard to get managers out from behind their desk and get out to see what's happening in the real world. That's a challenge. I've had managers that thought it was great fun. Uh, I had a plant manager would go out at two in the morning, you know, nuclear plants running 24 seven. And we were rock stars, go out at two o'clock in the morning. Everybody wanted to talk to us. We had, it was a lot of fun, I really enjoyed uh, those walk-arounds with my uh, plant manager. But in general, it's been hard to get people to see the value in that. And frankly, I've come to believe there's nothing more valuable than that. Getting out, demonstrating you care, you're interested in what your people are doing, and you're interested in them. Uh, there's nothing more valuable than the management involvement. So let's keep that in mind. Uh, Phil, what would you add? Or so so as Jim was talking then, it reminded me of of a, it was a, a station director, that's what we call them in the UK, uh, of our nuclear plant. And he and I were good friends. And, and he said to me one day, he said, uh, why can't I get the, the other managers out on the plant? And this was during a period of, of an outage. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, why, why do you need to tell them? They should be doing it anyway. And, he said, I'll try to show. And so what he did, the first few times he, he made me go with him. I was this, the senior trade union representative on the, on the facility. And he would get dressed up in, in his PPE and he carried a black polythene bag or plastic bag. And he'd go out and he'd pick up rubbish all the way around the, the shutdown area the closed down reactor and after just a few days it made a difference you know people were engaged people would stop and talk to him he would stop and talk to people and then other managers would not all i have to say but other managers started to do the same i'm not sure if they felt it was because they they had to because les was doing it but you know that to me was was a real eye-opener to see how impactful that was from the senior guy on the plant to be out picking up rubbish. And I have to say, it was probably the, the cleanest, tidiest, safest outage we'd ever had. Hmm. And that was because of his engagement. This, that was quite rare. Yeah. Jim, we'll go with your comment on that first. And then if anybody else wants to comment, um, just unmute yourself and that'll give me the uh, heads up that you want to see comment on this? <clears throat> well, yeah, uh, people respond to their managers when they show an interest in their work. They're happy to have you show an interest in their work. Uh, and in addition to the relationships that that builds with managers in the workforce, you know, there's a due diligence element uh, to this too. Uh, if you think about the Deepwater Horizon uh, 2010, uh, platform exploded, killed 11 people in the biggest oil spill in history. Uh, managers were there for a safety celebration. They hadn't had a lost time accident 
in seven years. They thought they were safe. They got prizes and awards and they were there for that safety celebration on the day of the explosion. And they were doing management visibility tours. You know, they would go out and they're looking at extension cords and slip strips and fall hazards and so on, but they weren't engaging with the workers. There was some critical safety work going on that they didn't want to get involved with. They didn't want to bother the people who were doing it. Uh, so those people, I mean, that's a good example, I think, of managers wanting to do the right thing, doing things. I, I won't say that some of the things they did didn't add value, but they didn't build relationships. They didn't get to know what the work was rather than what they imagined it to be. Uh, so, I mean, managers have a big stake in knowing what reality is, especially in high consequence work. That's so fascinating. And I see Tom wants to speak, but um, the, uh, before we leave that, that the visibility isn't enough because so many employees complain that management isn't visible, but just showing your face is not enough. Whereas in Phil's case, the, um, you know, picking up the, uh, trash and and showing that you are not uh, that, that you're one of them has that psychological impact of creating the trust and openness fascinating on that thank you um, Jim go ahead Tom <clears throat> I should probably declare declare an interest in that I was brought into BP after Texas City and was ah, okay. quite heavily involved uh, in post post Macando post Deepwater Horizon I suppose one of the questions that I'd ask, because often in these discussions, it's presented as a, a statement of the obvious that managers should be out and managers mostly when you talk to them would say they're out. And I think the question that I would ask in terms of that question survey that you asked, I think if you asked most people, they would respond that their managers are involved in the safety program, but it's probably a lot less than the managers would hope they are or believe they are. And the question I'd ask is why are managers not keen to do this, not involved? And I think there's two sides to it. One is recognizing that it's an activity that the people who are senior managers are obviously or often not comfortable with. The personal interaction of someone very senior going out to very junior in a humble way. And it is about being humble. It's, you know, I really don't know what your job is. Please tell me about your job. Please explain your job. And I want to know what I can do to help you do better. And that's really an uncomfortable position for them. And certainly it's an unnatural. Even the people who are good at it when they're senior managers find it quite a strange place to be. And, and I think the other thing is technical. And it's interesting that both Jim and Philip are talking about nuclear power stations, where I suspect they're quite lucky in that the station managers are very strong on all the technical issues whereas many of us will be working in environments where the managers aren't technically strong in everything they can't be as jim said they're responsible for everything and the senior managers who were involved on um, the deep water horizon they really didn't understand enough to engage confidently on the key fundamental operational issues. Jim's saying their safety, but they only became safety when they all went wrong. Safety had become occupational safety. So, and I think one of the dangers of managers going out is that they, they get the interaction wrong. So instead of showing respect and humble and interest, they push people into a kind of defensive, it becomes a parent-child relationship when actually the, the child, the operator, the frontline engineer knows more about it. And that can be quite dangerous. Um, but also in the technical area, the managers default to something where they're confident. So rather than talking about the problems of well control and reservoir pressures and cementation, which are all, you know, hundreds of very deep technical specialist silos that led up to that Macondo issue, they were there talking about occupational health, safety classes, near miss slip strips and falls. Those are all important, but they can become a distraction. So I suppose my kind of pushback to the community is to think about and understand why it is actually very difficult. It's kind of, it's, it's obvious it's what we should be doing, but to do it better and to do it more, it's sometimes helpful to recognize how challenging it is to do it really well across a broad spectrum of activities, or sorry, issues. So, you know, personal, technical and so on. That's really just kind of a pushback against the, the conventional wisdom that it's obvious and should be done. It is hard. 
Yeah, I, and I, I know Bill wants to speak, but I want to make sure we follow up on that concept of um, that it's very hard for us to step outside of the role that we see ourselves in. And we don't really appreciate how hard that is. And um, we are programmed to not lose face right? We don't, we don't want to lose face. So we always, uh, one of the ways to lose face is to um, know less than the other person. So those, those are two psychological dynamics going on. Bill, um, what were you going to mention? I was just going to add something about the management uh, involvement. Uh, in my career, I've been uh, involved in the industry response to a lot of the major accidents mm -hmm. but one of my messages all the time and it's because I'm an engineer is that uh, in addition to visibility and commitment of management to safety managers are responsible to provide their employees with all the information and tools and procedures and whatever to make the right decisions at the right time. So it's not just a commitment and visibility thing. They have to make sure that employees have the right tools to, to make good decisions no matter what the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And how would they know that? What, so how, would they know, how would they know what those things are or how do they know they need to be responsible for that? Both, I guess. Well, uh, Phil, wait a minute, I think I interrupted Phil. Go ahead, Phil. So, well, I was, I was going to respond to, to Tom, and I think Tom sparked oh, a, a oh. thought in my mind, in, in as much as many of our senior managers, many of the senior managers that I've come across in, in my time have, have all been technical engineers. And I think we assume that they understand about safety. And for many, I think that they think that safety is slip strips and falls and PPE and and that sort of level. You know, I, I had a conversation only a few months ago with a, a group of, of leadership where I'm currently working, and I, I spoke about um, about drift and how do we identify drift, and they didn't they didn't have a clue what I was talking about, which is something that I thought. I'd assume that they would know or they, they would be aware of, but they weren't. So I think one of the barriers, and, and yeah, along, again, along, Tom's, along with Tom's thought, I got written down on my pad here. What are the barriers for leaders for their engagement? So, um, and I think perhaps knowledge is one of those. As Rosa said, people don't like to engage and, and be found out to feel that they're inadequate. Absolutely. You know, that, that brings a point up, I'm trying to see, uh, Tom, you wanted to respond to that? I, I, I can do. I think one of the interesting questions, and Bill um, made a really important point, I'm sorry I missed his name, was it Bill, but about we're engineers, and as, as Philip was saying, people are engineers, but I think one of the things it's important to recognise on, and I'm particularly interested in major hazards, so if you like the, the deep water rise and the big accidents, um, and someone said earlier, it's about complex systems. A lot of accidents occur because of poor interface between experts. The silos don't communicate well. And I think there's, some, there's a British anthropologist who's done some interesting work that looks at a number of disasters, including in the financial world, that it comes from poor communication between the silos. And one of the things that the manager needs to be doing out there is understanding the specialists, but they're never going to be the expert in each specialism. They need to be interfacing between those. And that is quite a subtle role. And I think, you know, such as a, the concept of drift is an interesting one, because how do you spot drift in communications? How do you spot drift in a particular silo? Um, so I think it's quite, it's quite a complex area. And the managers need to be quite thoughtful about what they're trying to achieve on each of these occasions. And I've I've seen a manager be very effective on exactly as Philip described to go out with a black plastic bag because it says something. But what I was impressed with this team was that they did it for a short period and then moved back from it. You know, they changed the behavior, but they didn't get lost in that because to some extent, having a senior manager coming out in the middle of a shutdown and 
picking up rubbish. That's a start and it shows a certain behavior. And it's for me, it's a great start because it's a particularly humble way to go about it. Yeah. But when things start to go wrong, maybe I want the, the senior leaders to be helping us interface better or flushing out or challenging assumptions. So I think that's, I'd highlight the dangers of specialists staying in that role. And perhaps some of the worst managers are people who are particularly strong in one silo. You know, it's a danger of being an engineer. And I'm an engineer in that respect as well. Mm. Yeah. I would also question the, 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 the flip side of that. If you focus on the engineer leader coming out and trying to get that mastery and overview uh, on two fronts, the first is that false confidence it might give that you are uh, getting there. And that's a really bad place to be. Um, you know, by all means, try and get your relationships right so that people are comfortable bringing things up and so that you're less likely to miss things, but not on the basis that you're the one with the great overview that can answer everything. It, um, and I suppose that flips into um, another piece, which is that you know, if, if all of the integration is in that one person and that person goes, uh, you've got a catastrophic failure of your system. Um, now, in 40 years, nobody's ever really come up with effective ways of breaking down silos. The idea that you shouldn't have silos is ludicrous. You are going to have silos, but you need to work out how your system can work despite the silos. Accept that they are going to be there. Accept that you shouldn't be the be all and end all of connecting the dots between the silos and work out how your system can be resilient with dysfunctional silos at its core because those will always be dysfunctional they will you know that no good no organizations ever got rid of them so first principles of safety management you you've got to have some redundancy in there and very often the point where the impact of the people being in different silos is most apparent is actually not above the silos it's below the silos it it's it's having people who um who feel the impact of the different silos uh, at the very bottom of the management tree um, that you're most likely to see those sort of perspective things. But how can you maximize the communications at that level, the awareness, and how can you make sure that if people at that level are picking things up, that that's getting back to you? Now, if you do all of that, then you've set systems in place where if you leave the organization and somebody new comes in, you're actually not taking everything with you. Interesting, Greg. Yeah, Mike? <laughs> yeah, just further to that point, um, I think the discussion to this point primarily is focused on the individual and the, the leader, the manager's role in, in uh, managing safety. <clears throat> um, but it, re it really is a function of systems and the org design that you've created. Uh, you're just talking about uh, functional silos and organizations don't do that very well. There's really two, I guess, there's two design constructs that can describe the modern organization. And one is that we segregate people based on what they know into these silos. But the other design construct is that we remove autonomy to make decisions from the lower echelons and we inculcate it in the top echelons. And the integration of that silos then happens at too high a level in the organization for them to appreciate complexity and variation that's inherent at the bottom level. And that's, that's the issue. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how often you, if you're a manager in a traditional organization, if you go to the Genchi Gambutsu, if you go to the floor, if you're not empowered or the folks who understand the complexity or the problem, if they're not empowered to make decisions on that, you won't have safety. And it doesn't matter how good your leaders are because the system doesn't support that. I was working with a client who was also involved in the, in the Ranger. They were uh, manufacturing parts for Evolve Parts up in Canada. They have a machine that they use to sand down some of the discs to, to remove the burrs. And there's a plaque on it that says that it was commissioned and approved by the War Council in 1944 in Canada. It is the most uncomplete, and the, the, the operator there has these scratches all over his arms. Anyway, everyone knows it's a joke. And subsequent to the Ranger, they had come up with uh, a, a mission statement about no one gets hurt, no one gets harmed. Nothing gets harmed, no one gets hurt. 
And I said, well, tell me about that thing out there. And they said, well, we've, we've done a hazard analysis and we've made some recommendations on replacing it. And uh, so we're looking after it. And I said, I'm sorry, where, where is that sitting right now? And when was this done? And it was initiated eight months before. And that recommendation was now sitting in head office in Houston with a thousand other rec safety recommendations. So it won't get done and people will get hurt. And that's because the decision to make, the safety decision that was understood by that operator every single day is uh, completely unempowered to make a call on that. And that's a design issue. And Toyota is one of the companies that does do that. They are siloed, but the communication level that they're able to break down, how they're able to communicate across those silos at a very, very low level is remarkable. So yes. They don't seem to have those issues. Well, some plants do. Some really. do, and, and they always will be, and they will recognize that they will never get it perfect. That's what's so brilliant about them. They'll say, we will never, ever get it right. So we must put controls in place like and on cords. And when we pull an and on cord, they'll get a response to that. If you pull an and on cord in a Ford, you'll get fired. Most places don't have an and on cord. I understand, but my point is that it's not just the system that makes it work because what, if you put the Toyota system into every plant and there's some that where it doesn't work, where there is, uh, there's a lack of trust, there's a lack of um, you know, collaboration and the communication that you're talking about, then it's not just the system that makes it work. Um, Deming would say it's 95%. What? Deming would say it's 95% the system. Uh, and I would agree. Yeah, but so that five percent must be very important since, uh, I mean, if, if a system as strong as Toyota still has plants that uh, are dysfunctional, doesn't that mean that the 5% is pretty important? Well, their dysfunctional plant would kill any other automotive plant. Their worst plant is significantly better. I was working with Lockheed Martin and we we're in Sandia National Laboratories and we were looking at um, systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we talked about systems and to get their head around that, we talked about if you take a child that grows up in, in Somalia, that's born in Somalia, that child, the life expectancy of that child will probably be about 25 to 30. They will suffer. They will not be able to realize their potential because nothing in that environment supports that child um, and allows them to, to thrive. Take that, th that child out of Somalia put that child into where I am in a third world, in a first world country democracy in Canada, mm -hmm. that child could grow up to be the president of this, of this country. Their life expectancy will probably triple. They will be, have access to education, clean water, clothing, all of those things that they wouldn't have. That environment either will yeah. allow that child to thrive. Yeah, there's no argument for me on that. I was just the five uh, percent <laughs> okay because there's always something i don't know what we want to call it some people call it magic uh, i i call it leadership um which is one of the reasons why we're looking at leadership today so let me ask the group um i i was involved in a linkedin discussion where a lot of data was presented that uh, managers, and there's a conversation here about the difference between managers and leaders, and uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with that, uh, that the first, uh, th that you have to be willing to take on the role of leadership to be a leader, right? So when we say the word, we, we didn't open with the word leader, we opened with the word managers, how to get managers involved. And some of those managers do become leaders okay but anyway the argument on willington was that managers again that 95 percent thing came up that managers are um the cause of um accidents and disasters that, that it's managers and uh this was dominic cooper had done a whole paper and study on that uh and he said the managers this isn't going to change until we hold the managers accountable uh, and, I, and I'd like to uh, toss that out to you because I'm wondering what you think of that, that holding the managers accountable for, I don't know how we would do that other than we do put some in jail, uh, but uh, that, that holding them accountable would fix 
most of what goes wrong in safety. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Well, you can't <clears throat> develop good systems, and you do need systems, uh, unless you know how the work is actually going on. You're de designing systems that don't reflect reality. So it's very important, I think, for management to have that feel for what's going on in the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what engagement, one of the things engagement mm -hmm. does for you. Uh, back to a couple other points uh, were made, you know, managers a lot oftentimes aren't comfortable or the employees aren't comfortable. You have to kind of train folks, first of all, and make that a clear organizational expectation that we're going to do these interactions. We're going to do these engagement uh, things. If a manager goes out, and this happens a lot, you know, they can actually be counterproductive when they try to engage with their employees because they're so used to command and control. They're so used to telling people what to do that they can't look, listen, and learn humbly. That word came up. I was glad to hear it. Uh, respectfully in an adult to adult, fear-free environment uh, where you partner with the workers on the floor. How can we do this safer, better, faster, cheaper? You know, what, what are your suggestions for that? And then of course you need a system to make sure those issues that come up are actually taken care of. Because if you go out in the field, partner with employees, come up with some great ideas and then you don't act on them, you have killed that relationship. It's very, very important that you have those systems and hold yourself accountable. Uh, for corrective actions that actually get corrected and communicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was seeing in the chat that Tom, you had some contributions. Did you want to share? Yeah, I can. Yeah, <laughs> I think. I mean, I think one of the interesting questions is that, that this is actually we very quickly got into a quite a quite a difficult or quite a powerful, rich conversation about the difference between management and leaders. And I think if you challenged people going out to do their daily safety walk, are you there as a manager or as a leader? I think they'd find that quite an interesting and thought provoking question. And I guess if you were someone accompanying them, likewise, and also if you're a safety um, professional preparing the guidance, whether it's a checklist or a sheet or trying to set up the format for those interactions. Again, it, it's not an easy answer, but it's a good question. Are we setting up this form to encourage the site manager to do more management or more leadership? Because often you want to do the reverse of what they're natural with. But the other part of this, which I think I, I find it helpful <clears throat> um, to separate the two roles. And we keep talking about the system um, but actually, there are many systems at many levels. And that's one of the things I know MIT did a lot of work about complex organizations. And um, senior managers weren't aware of the basic systems engineering theory where you've got typically the V model. So you, you see the different systems and you start to look for the different systems at different levels. And often the manager is responsible for a particular system but the leader is responsible for getting the balance between those various systems, getting the effective interaction between those systems. And again, as someone said, I think one of the key things for a, a senior person going out on site is to really look at the people in the front line who are experiencing the reality and they can see where the, the system as designed isn't working. They're getting injured and scratched every day, or maybe they're lacking the resource. So the system is being rushed too much. And, and there is this fine balance. And someone said, you know, you want managers to be responsible. You want individual staff to be responsible because obviously rigor, discipline, compliance is a very important part of safety. But the, the counter to that is recognizing where the system is stressed out and breaking early. I mean, that comes back to the Ambon cord. You obviously, you don't want a factory where people pull the cord all the time in a thoughtless way. It wouldn't be very effective, would it? Yeah, that's right. There's a balance to this stuff. And everyone focuses on a few very powerful visual signals. But clearly, and I guess we've all looked into it, there's a, there's a huge culture behind it. And that's one of the problems of, you know, Ford doesn't turn itself into Toyota by hanging some strings on stop buttons. It's, I think you know, it's, 
it's not so much that there's a, there's not an answer to this lead your manager issue, but it's an important question and often recognised we don't really know the answer. And the and same on the one system. Of the reasons I, I wrote my book about the relationships because that is part of the system as well. And I when I refer to the five percent, I think that's the that's the five percent because uh, if people don't trust each other, if they don't communicate with each other, then you can have the best system in the world, and and, and it just isn't. I, I guess one of the things I'd say is interesting. I read a book recently by Adam Grant in terms of, I forget what it's called. Hold on, I've got it on my bookshelf. I'm thinking again, and it's it's recognizing people are quite happy to accept it's 5%. Actually, it's probably much more like 55, 60, 65%. Being an open about how little we know is quite an important role. And, and once you recognize, we don't really understand how this organization's working then you can, if you're open about we're here to learn, that's a leadership role, then you need to drive into the management role about let's collect information, let's set up some task force, let's put in place corrective action. But, but doesn't that go back to Jim's opening statement that uh, management is responsible for safety? Uh, and uh, so if we're uh, trusted advisors or working within an organization, um, what is our role in terms of addressing this situation, Jim? Uh, well, I think it starts at the beginning. When you hire people, they should understand that one of the things they'll be doing is engaging in safety. I'm talking about working level people and they'll be engaging with their managers. Managers need that training and understanding as well and those expectations. We expect our managers in this company, in this plant to engage with their workers. And we may put a system together uh, to help make that happen, but that's where safety can come in. What do we need to teach our managers about interacting with their workers? What do we need to do with HR to make sure that in the hiring process, people understand what's expected of them, both managers and workers, uh, in terms of engaging to, for continuous improvement. Uh, you know, that, that's basically it. And that I think is safety's role. Also to synthesize what comes out of these uh, engagements too, and to set up systems where managers talk to each other about what they're finding in the field and share that learning. You know, I, when you engage with an employee, you, you should seek first to understand what they're doing uh, and appreciate what they're doing and then you can get with that person, partner with them, uh, or persons. How can we do this better? And that needs to be taught up front. Or you can get counterproductive or no uh, engagement. Talk to whom? Talk to the managers? Yeah, I think you need to train the managers. You need to train the employees. And you need to set expectations for engagement. I just one comment I'd make is that I think on on occasion it's taught, but there are other occasions when it's definitely facilitated learning together. It's and it comes back to your original post on LinkedIn, which I think is really important. That the questions you ask are all valid, and your concerns I think are really powerful. Um, but there is this contradiction, this tension that I find that the safety culture we often slip into an instructional basis. We, our natural mode is tell. We, we started off talking about management move to leadership. We started off um, saying we need to respect the experts and you know everyone's an expert in their skill set. And we need to make sure that we've got a safety culture that reflects that. So it is, is this a teaching? Yes, you will do this, that, and the other. You know, there are things that you have to do right on a nuclear power station, but there are other things where it's learning together you know, sensing communication leadership. So I think I am just highlighting the language matters here. It yeah, exposes some- The most important word there, listen and learn together. Yeah. 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 So the, if we look at the, the young professionals coming in or, you know, we're trying to make a difference in preparing the safety professional to come into the organization uh, and be more successful in building a relationship with management. That's the way I see it. So what would you say is, uh, in, in terms of your own growth and personal development, how did you begin to develop that relationship where 
you were uh, heard, where you where management started mm -hmm. to really listen to what you had to say. How did how did that happen? Can can I just make a, a comment about? Um, I think we're getting a heightened appreciation for complex adaptive systems and you're hearing more and reading more about um, weak signal detection um, and distributed cognition and distributed decision making. And essentially that's what an and on court is. It's giving an opportunity to, to the folks closest to the work, if they have an idea, a comment, a concern to be able to say here, please come and look at this. And it's not willy nilly. Toyota, they do stop their line 3000 times a week. Every plant does that. Mm -hmm. And they're able to respond to that by looking at a safety issue, a quality issue or something. And it's driven by the folks who are embedded in the system that are closest to the work. And the system then has to respond to them. Now, the agility to be able to respond to the emergent nature of complexity, the emergent nature of, of, of a problem, a quality issue, a potential safety hazard. We don't know when that's going to happen today, tomorrow, or when throughout the shift, but we've created a, a sensing network that is manifest by an and on cord that allows you to do that. So the leadership, there's, there certainly is leadership inherent in that, but you don't, the system requires you to do that. The system requires me when I think Tom, you mentioned it's important to listen and to understand this system forces people to listen. If I'm a supervisor and my employee pulls the end on court, I have to respond to it. There are financial implications on that. You have to have enough people there. You have to have enough folks there to be able to respond. Um, you have to, um, yeah. but the underlying <clears throat> assumption is that my folks understand the, the process. And the other underlying assumption is that Labor is no longer a cost to be managed and to make efficient. Labor is something that allows us, that is sentient, enables us to be able to fix, improve. And we're going to create a system that's going to enable that. And Michael, this comes from quality, doesn't it? This concept of pulling the cord? It, it, there, equality would be an aspect of it, Tamara. It would also be about safety. It would be about an opportunity to improve. Mm -hmm. um, it could be anything that, as an operator, if I see something that is untoward, that's unique, it's different, it's, um, it could be, certainly it could be a quality, but it could be I'm, I'm just, just as well as the safety. The roots come from quality, doesn't it? Well, actually the roots came from you know, if you consider Toyota at the, at the turn of the, in 1950, their right. economy was destroyed. Um, they didn't have a domestic market because they're, you know, they just lost a huge war. They didn't have a domestic market. They didn't have uh, any natural resources mm -hmm. and they were competing against the biggest organization in the world. Right. So there was a recognition that if we want to compete against them, we must do something differently. And the one thing that they focused on was we need to, re we, we need to uh, question some of the underlying assumptions about how we organize our people and how we engage the front line. It was a recognition that the people closest to the work understood complexity and variation at a level that anyone above, even if you were at some point in there, you wouldn't yeah. appreciate. So it was, it was actually designed, and it was designed by an American Deming, really, it was the, yeah. Yeah. and the American food production or distribution system. So they were inspired by a lot of things that were American, Western, and they cobbled it together to say, this is what we need to be able to do to compete. Yeah, and, and the reason I'm just bringing up the quality element is mm -hmm. that in business, quality is valued for product sales. So that's, that's what I'm thinking here is that um, it wasn't brought under the auspice of safety. It was brought under the auspice of quality control for products. Oh, the motivation you're saying. Uh -huh. yeah. Not necessarily. If you, if you okay. lose a worker, if someone goes off, there's a cost associated with that that's significant and huge. Yeah. But, there is but a... I, think, uh, I mean, I think <laughs> Tamara's question is quite yeah. interesting because it has become almost universal in safety in the form of the stop work. You know, everyone's got the right to stop work, but how often do, does that happen? Yeah. Um, and I think what's quite interesting, and, and Michael gave a really nice integrated description of 
what everything you know to get to understand that chord you have to understand japan in 1950 and all the way through you know it's it's a very simple visual signal and and i think it's very easy for some of these things to get misinterpreted it's like a stop card you know the stop card is for dupont was just like the end of a 25 year journey probably a 125 year journey yeah. since they blew up the family on their explosive site and, and an example that I'd give, which I think for me exposes the importance of understanding the richness is, I mean, Atul Gawande did some really interesting research and mm -hmm. produced that book, The Checklist Manifesto. And the number of people are, you know, I've seen it in a bookshop, let's introduce checklists. Well, actually, if you read the book, one of the major benefits that he found was the first item of the checklist is make sure everyone in the operating theater not only knows everybody's name, but actually has heard everyone talk. You know, you've got the, the most oh, yeah. junior person in the operating room being prepared yeah. to talk. But, yeah. And I use that as an example of seeing the sort of rich complexity of these simple manifestations. And that's, that's what leadership needs to be looking at when you go out and plant. Not have we got the cord, not has someone pulled it, mm -hmm. but have we got the whole healthy organization, organism almost working. Yeah. So well, I think... I want to raise a point of um, what's happening here in the conversation, because uh, it's taken it's a, a life of its own, which is what happens in complex systems, right? And conversation is the way that things organize themselves and happen in organizations. It's the organization is uh, uh, is a conversation. So I had come into this. Uh, with Jim and Phil, which was the idea of helping people understand how to get management involved uh, in safety, how to physically get them uh, involved in safety and to move from a management position, really, I suppose, into a leadership position. All right. So I just would like uh, to ask the group then, um, how did that switch happened because I think it's important. How, how did we then shift into the complexity? Is it related to uh, management involvement in any way? I'm just curious because uh, it would uh, help me to understand. Well, when you mentioned how do we get it to shift into complexity, I think um, I know some many people here are familiar with the Kinefin framework. And they, so they understand that in the ordered world, there's the complicated domain and there's the clear domain. When we get into complexity though, where you have agents acting against each other's in unique and novel ways, where there isn't linear causality, which we love to find in any kind of safety investigation, mm -hmm. there has to be a way to, to, um, to be mindful and to be engaged with that complexity in real time when it happens. And the agility to be able to respond to that, the uniqueness of that, the, the emergent nature of issues requires folks, requires people. I can't, I can respond to, it, it, like it, if you talk about Atul Gawanda, when he talks about healthcare in America, or if you look at, Liker did an article in 2005 in the Harvard Business Review, fixing healthcare from within. One of the, the problems with safety or any of these issues is the algorithms that are embedded in our workforce planning tool don't take into consideration that we need people on the job that will, or we need time, people need time to be able to look at what they do, examine what they do, fix what they do, not just do what they do. The problem with healthcare in America is that every nurse, every doctor goes in there and they kill people every other day inadvertently but there's no, but they are forbidden to discuss it. They have no time scheduled to, to do any kind of retrospective. And the, so they continue making the same mistakes over again. We're not agile to deal with that because we've completely gutted our frontline folks and they're overworked and they don't have time to do that, that the, the types of investigations in real time that, that are required. Yeah. And that's why we skimped over accountability so quickly. I mean, with complex adapt, you know, we're talking about the whole are the management leadership responsible? And you've got I mean, one question to ask well, would it have made any difference if anybody else had been in that place? But if you're actually uh, in a situation where, well, if you hadn't employed that person, you'd have employed one of those three other people, and they're basically clones. It's where we are at this moment. And one of the key principles with um, 
culture and with complexities, you are where you are. Now you 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 can work towards to get to a better place, but trying to hold somebody um, accountable has to start with well, where were you and that that whence and where and where next is absolutely critical so when we're talking about this toyota line and the rest of it we dive straight into the where did it come from the history and then you're looking at the progressions and the small steps which is the way that you get the culture change now there's accountability in there but you've got i mean go back to etienne wenger trainer stuff about horizontal and vertical accountability you've got to develop systems where there is horizontal accountability because that's the essence of your social learning system where your system as a whole develops. And that is where you get your stronger culture, but you can't just have that because that's only half the picture. You still need some vertical accountability, but a lot of that vertical accountability is for making sure that the horizontal stuff is actually happening effectively. Now, when you say we're not agile or we're not this and that, that's great. But if you're in a position where the organization is just going to look blankly at the, the very idea, then you can't just flick a switch and become agile. And that's, a, you know, that's going to be a long journey. So holding somebody accountable in a management role who's getting us to the point where we're getting fewer stories like that and more stories like this, that's fine because that's all small and manageable. But you're, you're, you're only saying, is it better than it would have been the way things were being done a year ago. Yes. Okay. Right. Are we making enough steps quickly enough? Yeah, that's a good way of holding somebody accountable. But trying to hold somebody accountable for the fact that your organization isn't agile when it's got 15 years of history um, that's actually been creating constraints that make it really difficult to become more agile is absolutely nonsensical. Well, the whole notion of accountability in the modern organization is laughable. Accountability is diffused throughout the organization. No one's accountable. Take for that, that valve that was in, the, in, the, in a pipe in the Ranger. Um, if it was caused by a burr at this one particular plant, who are you going to blame for that? Like somebody notified it. He told his supervisor. It went up to a manager. It went across to a safety guy. He did a report. He sent it down to Houston. The guy in Houston is looking at a thousand others. He has to run it by the finance guy who says, what are we going to fund or what don't we? What, you know, and by the time that you go through that, where is accountability? The I, nature I, of our organization, we don't have it. I, I think there is, a, there, well, there, there is a tension. Point, but I, I, I want to bring Jeremy into the conversation because you've been there listening quietly. But what did you mean by blackout dates? Yeah, we, I mean, it kind of speaks to Michael's point. We, you know, managers are facing all these, I'm going to call them inputs into their daily work product that have nothing to do with core operations. They're, they're disparate things that, that happen to impact them during the day. So just one practical thing was we went to these blackout dates where we uh, weren't allowing anybody to schedule meetings over certain periods of time in the calendar, just allowing managers to go out and spend time with their people and uh, kind of resisting the urge of adding safety processes or checklists to those interactions and just letting people start to get to know each other. I think the whole idea behind it was, can we, can we take down some barriers to information flow in the organization? And would safety be a beneficiary of that type of interaction? That, that was the whole concept. So we call them like no meeting Fridays or blackout dates. And we just, our calendars were blocked off where we could go out with the workforce. Okay. That, that's a structural solution to make room for, for the conversation to happen. Yeah. So what, what have you thought of the overall conversation so far? No, I, I mean, I appreciate all those viewpoints. I, I think, so I'm, I'm more at the regional level. Uh, so not in senior management, but kind of in the in-between zone. Uh, I do think there's a, uh, there's some appreciation for just how complex people's jobs have become. And it's not just pressures on profitability, but it's everything else too. And there's a balancing act that's constantly going on with managers. And I, I think they care about their people ultimately. And the, the quicker you can get them to connect with their people, the people they really care about, I think the better off you are, whether it's quality or cost or production related issues, but connecting them a little faster to that and getting some of the barriers out of the way is probably a wise practical application of the conversation. Just a thought. 
No, that, that's very valid because we've been talking about complexity at, at a high level, but then there's the complexity of you know the level of the individual, the manager, and all of the different um, uh, pressures and demands that are going on with that person. So when we talk about uh, the captain of the Concordia is in prison now uh, because of the sinking of the ship. Uh, he feels that, um, and uh, he feels that, uh, it, that, that uh, leadership is being blamed for something that is really a lack of technical knowledge and technical experience in the people that, that are being brought into work. And so to say that a leader creating psychological safety, for example, is going to um, open up that communication is ludicrous because how are they going to speak up about things if they don't know how to identify the hazard? So, when we, uh, when we say let's hold leaders accountable, um, there is this thing in the back of the mind about be a manager, go to jail. Uh, is that, I, I personally don't feel that that is um, a, a very, very uh, feasible or motivating. These are our minutes. Well, it, it's it, it's motivating. It sure is motivating if you're the the captain on the bridge of a ship. And I think that's the balance that, to some extent, we want a better system in all the ways that we would hope if there was a, a good investigation. But we also sure want to be on a plane or a ship where the, the master on the bridge feels accountable for the safety of his passengers. And mm -hmm. so it's, I mean, for me, the answer is both. And as I put, there's a really interesting and very powerful picture emerging out of the Grenfell inquiry where 74 people died. Well, day after day after day, the inquiry interviews people and you sit there thinking, if only you'd done your job right. <laughs> and yes, you can ask the question many times is why didn't they? And some of the people have got good excuses. Some of the people really, I hope, are, are having trouble sleeping probably for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Accountability is part of it but it's not a very good solution. And I think it comes back to, I can't remember who asked the question though. One of the fundamental questions in every, um, and the aviation industry is very good at asking this question in investigations is not, why did this person make the mistake, but why is the system set up such that anyone in that chair would be prone to making that mistake? You know, that's the contrast. You want people to do the best they can because ultimately we are dependent on individuals, but you want a system that sorts it out and doesn't make it, you want to make it easy for people to do the right thing. And, and you know, the safety profession needs to be able to cope with both. We've got to do an investigation and find out if people failed in a simple task, but also find out how to make the systems better. When you get to accountability and blame, um, the day that, um, so the largest grocery store chain in Canada outsources, they, they have a discount, um, uh, retail clothing store where they sell $8 t-shirts. Those $8 t-shirts are made in uh, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh where they lock their employees in and they hired eight, nine, 10 year old kids. Um, there's a fire, 1800 people died. Now, and if you're the CEO of a large multi-billion, 20, $30 billion in revenue a year, if you're a CEO of that company, you outsource production to one of those countries you forbid your executives from going over there because that would, uh, wouldn't give you the plausible deniability. So you hire a, an audit firm from the UK who then hires somebody else from India, who hires somebody else from, from Pakistan, and you create layers. Yeah. The day they put that person in jail, the CEO of that company who plays polo with Prince Charles, then we can talk about punishing other folks. But until we do that, I don't think we can, not with good conscience. Well, that's a very strong note to end on because we were, we're, at, we're over <laughs> <my> four minutes, <laughs> Mara. <laughs> uh, so that was depressing. <laughs> I'm sorry to end it on that note. <laughs> what, uh, what I, yeah, maybe uh, we should end on a more up note, right? <laughs> um, may, uh, 
maybe uh, I'll ask you, uh, Jim and, and Phil, what do you think about the course that our conversation took? And um, Phil? Well, for, for me, it, was, it went in all different directions. Um, I, the one direction I wanted to go in, but we didn't quite get there. Maybe that'd be another time. I was thinking about multicultural organizations and the, the varying impacts there. Talk about um, complexity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you, Mike, you, you got me thinking now. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, no, you, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> and Jim? Well, we did go on a lot of different uh, rabbit trails in the course of this, and that's okay. I learned a lot from it uh, too, by the way. Uh, I would say this about accountability. Accountability after the fact doesn't interest me too much. I'm more interested in accountability before the fact, doing the right things so you don't have to end up in jail or your British Petroleum and your $40 billion that you lost after the Deepwater Horizon blew up and people got fired and uh, often down in the floor level, which I think is generally totally unfair. But I'd like to see us hold ourselves accountable to do the right thing, uh, which includes building uh, relationships with our employees and understanding what reality looks like on the floor. I think it's critical if they don't, if managers don't want to be held accountable for bad results, they really need to get in touch with reality and get in touch with their workers uh, to make their plants safer, better, faster, and cheaper. And that should be an expectation. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll have to do another session on multicultural. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people, uh, would that be an interesting topic? multicultural uh, situations. I see an, uh, a thumbs up, one thumbs up. <laughs> uh, very good. Okay. Well, thank you everyone. Tamara, any last words? Thank you everybody for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you.